This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the great privilege that you give to us to assemble here in freedom. Thank you that we could uh, look at this subject called worship. We've been guided uh, by your word to enter in by faith into that heavenly sanctuary where you are. You've provided for us the pattern. You've provided for us the framework. And the enemy has substituted a counterfeit through which we then process these issues of worship and a whole host of other doctrines. So we pray that, it you, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would send us your Holy Spirit, grant us the eye salve, that spiritual discernment. And as you convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, grant us the courage to be men and women of opportunity, like Hezekiah, to move forward quickly. And so we thank you now for hearing our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually, my prayer is found in... Uh, for you in uh, the book of Colossians, I believe. And part of being led, guided by the Holy Spirit, is having understanding. And so notice what the Apostle does as he prays and, and, and his heart's desire for those whom he's writing to. It says, for, these, for this cause, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And so as we think about the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul earnestly pleaded that those whom he is ministering to might be filled with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But not just as a mental exercise. If you read the next verse, it says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so let's look at the Holy Spirit, the scriptures, and... Uh, and the sanctuary is theological foundations for worship and spirituality. Actually, we're going to get to that in the second part. Jesus said this, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. But what exactly does that mean? to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What actually constitutes spiritual worship? Who determines, what determines whether our worship, I'm talking about our corporate worship now, not something that you might do at home or privately, but what determines whether our corporate worship together is actually a spiritual worship? An analysis of the history of Christianity reveals that there are three focal points that are competing for the central place in worship. And these three approaches have a direct impact on what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. In the Catholic Church, the Eucharist or the Mass, or we would think about it as the Lord's Supper, in the, in the Catholic Church, it is the Mass that comprises the central aspect of worship. 
and becomes the way in which the presence of God is experienced among the people. So when the priest holds the wafer up, and that wafer, the substance of that wafer is transformed into the, into the substance of the divine Son of God, that is how the congregation then experiences the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, through their form of worship. Well, centuries later in the Protestant Reformation, there was a shift. Obviously, there was a shift then from the Mass or the Eucharist being the focal point to the preaching of the Word, which was the focal point. And so the presence of God then would come directly through the preaching of the Word. And incidentally, if you wanted to go, or if you've ever been in a Roman Catholic church or a basilica, that which occupies the central place architecturally is the great altar. That's at the center. So geographically within the church, that is at the center, which communicates that this is the most important thing that happens. And the presence of God is experienced through that. Well, during the Protestant Reformation, that then was abandoned for the pulpit, which would occupy the central place. So when the pulpit is in the center, geographically in the church, it sends the message that, hey, this is paramount. That's what happened during the Protestant Reformation. However, when you get to the charismatic movement, music is synonymous. For most charismatics, music is synonymous with the presence of God, with entering into the presence of God, with experiencing the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. And it occupies, I was, as I was doing uh, research for you know, my dissertation, um, theologians and historians have documented these three major focal points, uh, the altar, or I should say the, the, the mass, the word, and then, and then music as being the, the major focal points. And so one guy was kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, well, you know, in the Catholic Church, yeah, it would be the altar, and in the Protestant Church, the pulpit. But for us charismatics, he was saying it's, 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 the, it's the worship bands, you know, the drum kit. That's how people experience the presence of God, and it's synonymous with the presence of God. Well, if you've not heard about the emerging church, uh, that's the most recent phenomenon, maybe 25, 30 years old, um, mostly, in, uh, mostly among evangelicals. And the emerging church chiefly expresses God's presence through music and leans considerably closer to the Eucharist as the focal point of worship rather than the Word. All right? So you have these different approaches that are competing then for what is central. Uh, and that is expressed architecturally as well. Now, we're going to talk about the false foundation because unless you and I understand the false foundations and the worship principles and worship expressions that are based on those, we'll not have an idea of the true as well. You know, there are two antagonistic principles that have been working themselves out throughout history, throughout prophecy, and so we need to trace the working of these two antagonistic principles and compare the two. Have you ever read the book of Revelation and found out, wow, there are a whole bunch of contrasts in the book of Revelation? And the reason that is so is it's a great teaching tool, because we learn best when we can compare one thing with another and look at the, the similarities and the differences all the way from the ground up. So we are looking at a very false system here, and this is an incredible statement, and you will see the theological significance of this statement from Ellen White in The Great Controversy, hopefully, as we move on. But here's what it says. 
through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. Now, I know most of us are used to thinking about the immortality of the soul in this way. Uh, the dead will, you know, he will impersonate the dead and they will come back and they will speak to us and they will seek to lead us uh, away from an allegiance of the word. There's no doubt about the fact that that's true. And that is the modus operandi that he's going to use. However, there's also an interesting relationship between the doctrine of man and how we experience worship when you assume the immortality of the soul. I'm going to try to make that clear as we move along. It becomes an important prerequisite as to how worship is experienced and also as to how salvation is experienced. So these two major presuppositions have given shape to Roman Catholic, charismatic, um, emerging church, uh, and emerging church worship. Well, uh, Protestant worship now, interestingly enough, ever since the, uh, they call it the liturgical movement in the 19th century, ever since the liturgical movement and Vatican II, which I'll talk about just briefly in the 1960s, the Protestants have moved from, away from Something that's, uh, the, uh, something that's based on the Word to the Word and the Eucharist now vying for centrality ever since Vatican II. So there's been confusion there. So in these systems, the Mass, music, you could also put art, visual representations, these are all ways and mediums through which God's presence is communicated in these systems. All right? They become the chief means of experiencing the Holy Spirit and the presence of God in worship. Now, I want you to remember a word that's up on the screen. When you think about these two statements here, about the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, I want you to think this word, dualism. Dualism. And I'm going to split that up into two categories here. Sunday represents dualism in cosmology, I know that's a big word. Cosmology, the basic theory of heaven and earth, how it all comes together. The immortality of the soul represents the doctrine of man. These two form the framework upon which these systems of worship that I'm about, these false systems, are built upon. And hopefully as I get going and going and going, you'll be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. All right. Now, I want to talk about the importance of the Second Vatican Council as it relates to this subject. This is a council that took place between 1962 and 1965. Um, it's, it's a meeting where the, the archbishop, the cardinals, archbishops, bishops all get together. And it was described as the most important document uh, the one on the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which deals with worship, it was described as the most important council of the 20th century on the subject of worship. It has spawned thousands of books, articles, conferences, and doctoral theses. Okay, This is not small, and this has been attested to not just by Roman Catholics, but all kinds of Protestants as well. When they think of um, the, the, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, it's, hey, this is it, all right? Now, I've read 17 Seventh-day Adventist dissertations as of 2008. Not one of them deals with this phenomenon. 
Because we usually think, well, those are Roman Catholics. They worship idols anyway. What do they know? And uh, we do our thing. But the seeds that they planted at that council meeting would affect Adventists, and that's what we're going to go through. So, very important council meeting. One of the documents it produced, it produced 16 documents. The Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy was one of them. Now, you need to understand that for 400 years, from the Council of Trent, which is the Counter-Reformation in the 16th century, for 400 years, Roman Catholic worship was uniform and predictable. All the T's were crossed, uh, all the I's were dotted, and, and, and no one could change a thing, okay? And Gregorian chant was the high point of the Roman Catholic Mass and the Roman Catholic Liturgy. Now, it is true that when high art music came along, they started engrafting that. But that's pretty much almost the only change that has been made. That's it. Now, when you get to Vatican II, they then take that and move it a quantum leap ahead. Now, let's read this. In certain parts of the world, they state, especially mission lands, there are peoples who have their own musical traditions, and these play a great part in their religious and social life. For this reason, due importance is to be attached to their music, and a suitable place is to be given to it, not only informing their attitude toward religion, but also in adapting worship to their native genius, as indicated in Articles 39 and 40. Uh, SC doesn't stand for Steps to Christ, okay? Uh, just to tip you off on that, it's uh, it's the Latin of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. All right, so uh, so it's not in Steps to Christ. You won't find it there. So it says, therefore, when missionaries are given training in music, every effort should be made to see that they become competent in promoting the traditional music of these people, both in schools and sacred services, as far as may be practicable. Now this is a quantum leap beyond. As a matter of fact, this caused shockwaves within the Roman Catholic Church. And there are some Roman Catholics that believe that as a result of these pronouncements, the chair at St. Peter's, even though occupied by other popes, has essentially been vacant. There were millions of Roman Catholics that woke up and said, I don't recognize my church anymore. Because in came the rock bands, in came all this kind of music during the 1960s, based on these pronouncements. You see, it was an ecumenical work. It was an ecumenical ploy in order to kind of regain influence that had been lost and gave the appearance that the Roman Catholic Church was essentially changing. But Rome does not change. This gave the appearance. And so one Protestant asked a really key question. How can a church which considers itself infallible and which has expressed that infallibility through certain forms of worship, now suddenly change its forms of worship without endangering its claim to infallibility. Are you seeing the, the logic here? Okay, the church is infallible. Well, how is that infallibility expressed? It is expressed through certain forms of worship. Now the forms of worship have changed, but yet the claim still exists. How can you do that without contradicting yourself? Plato and Aristotle to the rescue. All right? Now, this is where you need to fasten your seatbelts a little bit. But before we get to them, when you talk about corporate worship, there are three essential components of corporate worship. Obviously, the presence of God is the most important component of worship. 
So what is his nature? What are his attributes? By the way, philosophy and theology have defined those attributes in contradiction to what the Bible says about him. Who else is involved in worship? Well, we are as human beings. What else is involved? Rituals. The place you worship, the clothes you wear, the music that you use, the prayers that you offer, anything and everything constituting ritual, these things go together in what's called corporate worship. And so here you have the Roman Catholic Church changing its forms overnight. And again, millions of people left the church at that point because they didn't recognize their church anymore. That's how, that, that's how much dissonance this move made in the Roman Catholic Church. And so, but, so how can they do that? Well, Plato and Aristotle to the rescue. And again, fasten your seatbelts here. According to Plato, he's a Greek philosopher living around, you know, uh, 3rd to 4th century, 4th century B.C. So you're talking about almost uh, 300 plus years before Jesus, all right? And he theorized that this was the Greeks' first attempt at science, all right? They were tired of, they were tired of explanations like, well, the gods did it. Why is grass green? Well, because the gods made the grass green. All right, why do we have male and female? Because the gods made it male and female. I mean, whatever question you came up with, that was the answer. And, you know, that's not very intellectually satisfying. So they tried to think about why things change, why they remain the same, and this is what Plato came up with. He theorized that there are actually two worlds, a world of ultimate reality. Now, I know you're thinking in your mind, heaven, okay? (laughs) But, uh, uh... But his heaven is without time and without space. You see, when I came into the Adventist church, I had this idea that we'd be playing on puffy clouds, you know, harps, that, you know, you'd be able to see through each other because we're, you know, we're, we're ghost-like creatures. Uh, and we'd be playing on puffy clouds throughout all the ceaseless ages of eternity. That's what I thought heaven was. It wasn't really real. Well, for Plato, uh, there, heaven is timeless. It lacks neither time nor space, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, and it's perfect, eternal, and unchangeable. Unchangeable in, 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 in the sense that there is nothing that follows anything else. You see, there's four seasons in Greece, and so things, uh, you have springtime where things grow, and then you have the fall where it decays and everything dies. Why does everything do that? Well, because it goes through time. Ah, so there must be something perfect somewhere that isn't subject to time, Disease, death, and decay, all right? This is how he's reasoning. Well, and we live in the world of the shadows. The world that you can see, feel, hear, and touch is not really real. It's just a shadow. The substance is in this timeless realm, okay? And that's a good way to think about it. Substance and shadow. So the world is changing, temporal, and evil. Now, there is absolutely no empirical evidence to suggest that what Plato is saying is true. There's nothing you can go to and say, ah, that's because there's a timeless realm up there, okay? It's simply a construct of the human imagination and reason. That's all it is. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. But it's been used to explain reality. Why is this a pulpit? Because there is a real timeless one up there. This is just an imperfect copy of it. 
Why is that a chair? Not because you can see, feel, hear, and touch it. No. Because sensory perception is unreliable. You ever stuck the oar in the water and it's bent, right? Well, is it really bent? No, that's the problem with sensory perception. It's unreliable. And so that's a chair because there's a timeless, in, 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 up there in the timeless realm, there's a real chair. And this is the, simply the duplication of it. I know things simply by a process of reason, not because of any, any observation of the scientific method at all. How would this shape our discussion? Well, later on, um, if you study systematic theology on the doctoral level, you will study philosophy. And if uh, I've had the privilege of teaching history of Christianity, and all of the early church fathers assumed this platonic framework in their understanding of God. They said God is unchangeable. Now, the Bible says he's unchangeable, but that simply means that his ways are unchangeable. He makes a promise and he keeps it. Not because he's timeless, out, you know, exists in a place where there's no time and space. And so everything that Plato talked about as definitions then, now they get applied to God. And now the world is changing temporal and evil. Well, Plato's brilliant student Aristotle came along and he said, Plato, yeah, there's some good things about what you're saying, but this whole idea of having two worlds, I think you're out to lunch there. Because clearly, and Aristotle was more of a scientist dealing with, you know, things that he could see. And he said, no, 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 Plato, there's not two worlds. There's just but one. Okay. And reality is composed of substances and accidents. And an accident is not something that happens when you're driving on the road too fast and you skid into something and you, you know, you hurt yourself. Okay. An accident is the part of reality that you can see with your hands. Or see with your hands, feel with your hands and see with your eyes. Okay. Uh, so if I had a piece of bread here, um, the accidents of that bread would be, well, it's brown, and um, it tastes like there's maybe too much salt in it or something. Or <laughs> You can taste it, you can feel it, you can touch it. Those are the accidents. But that's not actually what tells me it's a piece of bread. There's a substance within the piece of bread that you cannot see. I mean, you can't break that bread apart and say, ah, there's the substance. So basically what he did is he stuck Plato's heavenly world into the realm of everything that you could see. Okay, there is a dualism there. The easiest way to understand it is how some people say that we have an immortal soul. All right, we have an immortal soul that is trapped inside the body. It's uh, it's not an entity or a, or a substance that we can you know come to grips with like that through our senses, but it's just there. So Plato's cosmology, his theory of the universe, forms this idea also of the immortality of the soul. But Aristotle said, no, things are composed of substances and accidents. Substances are understood on the basis of Plato's heavenly world and discerned only by reason. Accidents are, are, are derived from sensory perception. Now, why is this important? All of Christianity was greatly affected by Plato from Augustine in the, in the 5th century on. But when you get to the 11th and 12th century, they all of a sudden rediscover Aristotle and they're now trying to graft Aristotle into the Bible and into Augustine. And that's where Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic theologian, comes along. The Catholic Church adopted this framework to explain what happens when the priest consecrates the bread and the wine during the Eucharist or the Mass or the Lord's Supper. The change occurs at the level of the substance. They call it transubstantiation. And it is completely based on Aristotelian philosophy with its accompanying dualism, which will affect worship 
So hang on there with me. I'm not just going on a philosophical detour. We're going to bring this back to worship and reality. So um, that's what happens when the priest says the magical words, the substance of the bread and the wine, not the part that you can see, but the substance of it is transformed into the substance of the divine Son of God, Allah, Aristotle. Okay? Now, Along come the experts, and they say, you know, how do we define worship and the components of worship and how they go together? What's the word that I wanted you to remember? Dualism, okay? And this black line here means that uh, these things, if you remember Plato's world, this was, this was the, the, the timeless realm, things without time and space. This was the changing world, okay? This is the real thing, the substance, this is the shadowy thing, the, the unimportant part. Okay? They basically use this framework to then talk about what is most important in worship. Basically, the Eucharist or the Mass is understood as eternal and unchangeable on the basis of Plato's heavenly world. This is theological. This is unchanging. This is absolute, according to Plato. All right? according to Greek philosophy, as Greek philosophy understands what it means to be absolute. Now, notice what they say about art, music, and architecture. These are non-theological fields, all right? In other words, there is absolutely no connection then, no causal connection between the two. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say I have a gift, and then I wrap it up with a piece of paper, and you don't like the piece of paper that I wrapped it up with, so you chuck it, and you wrap it with another greater, more elaborate piece of paper. Well, it's not the piece of paper that's important. It's what lies underneath the piece of paper that's important. And so that's the analogy that they would use and say, you know, no, this is what's essential up here. This is, this is unchangeable. But art, music, and history, that doesn't really matter. That is how this dualistic framework has affected the thinking, and that's, that's what has allowed the, the Roman Catholic Church to switch their, 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 their ways of worship without contradicting their claim to infallibility, which is ultimately based on the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle, not based upon the Word. It's dualism that enables them to do that. And when you have the Mass as being central, the Mass has always been associated with Sunday. Sunday is the ultimate expression of the Mass. And so within this dualistic type framework, you have Sunday as the main representative of it. All right? Because Sabbath and timelessness, they don't get along. All right? We'll, we'll go through that in a minute. But let me, just, let me just show you what happened after the 1960s in the Catholic Church. All right? You have the unchangeable mass combined with changeable worship forms. In 1994, an African synod took place in Rome at St. Peter's Basilica, which used the Zairean rite. It gave powerful witness to the worldwide church of what liturgical enculturation can mean. After all, it's not every day that one sees cardinals dancing in St. Peter's. That didn't happen for 400 years, friends. That is not the way you celebrate the Eucharist. But after Vatican II changes okay see but those parts those are changeable things because they've got nothing to do with substance and theology so how you choose to express yourself after the eucharist 
That's completely up to you. But it's based on dualism. It's based on the thought that there's no causal connection between how I worship and who I worship. All right? I told you, you got to put your seatbelts on for a little bit here. Some more evidence. Listen to this. My intervention, this is given uh, from an archbishop in, uh, in Africa. My intervention is a hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God for the great blessings that the church in Africa has enjoyed in the post-Vatican II era, beyond 1960, through the active conscience, fruitful and indeed, um, also joyous partici- participation in the Eucharist celebrated in the richness of our cultural expressions. So the Eucharist celebrated in the richness of our cultural expressions. Let's move on. All over Africa in the last 40 years, not 400, okay, 40. In the last 40 years, beautiful Eucharistic celebrations have emerged which have deepened the faith of the people, improved the quality of their participation, increased the love of the priesthood, given joy, hope, in midst of distress, despair, fostered ecumenical rapport, and generally promoted evangelization. Now notice what he says. The Eucharist deserves and is receiving the best of our cultures. We may not have much to offer in terms of the glorious architecture of Europe, European cathedrals or the famous paintings of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, but what we have we are happy to give. Our songs and lyrics, our drumming and rhythmic body movements, all to the glory of God. We do well to acknowledge and extol the valuable heritage of the Eucharistic traditions of the different East, ancient rites of both East and West. I believe these are themselves the product of an enculturation that took place many centuries ago under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit has not gone to sleep. Liturgy, sanctum concilium. Okay, within the last 40 years, these things have been happening. They were not happening before. So, we may not have the brilliant cathedrals and the, fa- and the famous paintings that the Europeans have, but we give what we have. So, in other words, uh, the Eucharist can be expressed with any cultural expression. Okay? Because you have the substance, the bread and the wine, and that doesn't change, except for the transubstantiation. And then you have how that is celebrated, which is how your churches are built. That doesn't matter. That's not theological. Okay? That's based on the the dualism that Plato um, unearthed. And Plato's thoughts have been so powerful, it's almost taken 2,000 years to kill him. What about ecumenism? See, here's the problem with worship. You have some things that are constant and some things that are changing. If you get it wrong, you have pluralism. You don't have genuine diversity, all right? And unless we can see the difference between the two, we will not know whether what we're doing is genuine diversity or whether, in fact, it is pluralism. Does that make any sense? And so... This is what ecumenism is based on. The liturgical movement has brought out the ecumenical character of worship in the sense that all liturgy should unite us with the church in all times and places. That does not mean statism or uniformity in the liturgy. Okay, so you've got, you've got two pitfalls here. You either cross all the T's or dot the I's the way we used to do it, or you have free reign. Those are the two pitfalls. The liturgy can and must be adapted to circumstances while remaining true to the basic structures. Well, they don't define what those structures are, but philosophy has. And if you read between the lines, those structures are not the unchanging principles of God's Word. Okay? The World Council of Churches only agrees on a certain amount of doctrine, basically up to the end of the 
the, the, the Christological heresies and the heresies on the Holy Spirit. You've got to believe in the divinity of Christ and in the Trinity. That's basically it, friends. The rest is up for grabs. The liturgy may create an ecumenical unity of the churches everywhere. Now notice this. In the diversity of rites, which manifest in the integration of the basic structures in different cultures. Well, what exactly does this mean? This is the basis of ecumenism. You have the Eucharist, or the Mass, understood on the basis of Plato and Aristotle. That's theological. Now, all of these things here, diversity of rites, Sabbath versus Sunday, that's a non-essential. Sabbath is a point in time, right? It goes from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. If you're dealing with time, you're not dealing with anything of substance. That's a shadow. So that can't be theological. Are you following me? I'm giving you philosophy 101 and everything else. So this is not an issue, and I don't know why you Adventists are arguing about that. Sprinkling versus immersion. That's not an issue either. The way that things are done, or is it, friends? Is it not true that when you immerse someone, you're actually stating that the, that, that the, the, the sinner has died and they've been buried and now they're resurrected by the power of Christ? That whole theological message is lost when you sprinkle. The symbol points to a reality. That's why God has given us these things. But these things are non-essential. The pipe organs and strings versus drums and guitars, it does not matter. These are non-essential items. Why? Because of dualism. Dualism. There is no connection here. You can change this all you want. It will never change this. You can change the wrapping paper all you want. It will not destroy the substance of it. That's their argument. But that's based on dualism, which was birthed by my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Plato. So if there's anyone that can criticize Greek philosophy, I suppose it'd be a Greek, right? What was the impact of the Second Vatican Council on Protestantism? Huge, my friends. Did you know that there was not a worship war in Protestantism before Vatican II? Didn't exist. But what the Catholic Church did was just masterful here. Until this time, Catholics and Protestants worshipped in isolation, but after Vatican II, the differences began to be minimal. The impression was given that Catholicism was changing. After all, one of the documents that they produced at Vatican II is called Dei Verbum, by the Word of God only. And you'd think, okay, well, maybe they're doing away with the distinction of tradition versus the Bible. Nothing could be further from the truth. You've got to read the fine print. As a matter of fact, if you were to read, uh, if you were to read some of the documents at Vatican II, you would think that they would be produced by a Protestant because there's so much Scripture in them, okay? but they are still interpreted on the basis of Aristotle and Plato. So they had more of an emphasis on the Word. And, 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 and Protestants now were having more of an emphasis on the Lord's Supper. And they were putting aside their differences and seeking to unite through the liturgy. Another interesting phenomenon was taking place in the 1960s, and that was the charismatic movement. It had already begun in, in 1901, but it was really taking off during the 1960s. 
And the Roman Catholic Church latched on to the charismatic movement very, very quickly and pronounced it a work of the Spirit. And so you have the defining characteristic, this manifestation of power, speaking in tongues, the Toronto blessing, slain in the Spirit, stuck in the Spirit, dreams, visions, prophecies, etc., etc. You had the charismatic church then taking everything by storm. Before we get to the emerging church, then you had the developments of the megachurch. Two, two big, huge symbols of the megachurch are the, the Willow Creek Church in Chicago and the Saddleback Church in, uh, in California. And so, wow, you know, we got to build these big, 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 huge megachurches. Well, um, the emerging church was not satisfied with the megachurch approach because it was kind of like a cafeteria-style way of, uh, of doing church and very superficial. Oh, you like this? Okay, we'll have it in the worship service. We'll have the drama, we'll have the music, we'll have the drums, etc., etc., if that's what you like. We'll take out all these other things if that's what you don't like. And it appeared to be very kind of superficial. And so the emerging church wanted something more substantial. And they would look back to the early church, meaning after the death of the apostles, all right? So when I say early church, it's not talking about Peter, James, and John, and the apostle Paul. It's talking about developments after them, all right? So they looked back to the, uh, to the early church and said, wow, look at these guys. They have a vibrant faith. They're willing to die for their faith. You know, we want something more, ta- you know, something more substantial like that. And so they're really building off of two platforms. And let's see if we can put those together. The emerging church takes its name from the idea that as culture emerges, a new church should emerge. It resp- it's in response to modernism's cold hard facts, the emerging church or emergent church adopts a uh, postmodernism's warm, fuzzy subjectivity. Now, there are two key pillars of postmodernism. One, there are no moral absolutes. And this is where philosophy has come right now. And there are no absolutes. If you sit and analyze that for a second, you'll realize that that itself is an absolute statement, so it's absurd. But those are the two key pillars of postmodernism. Now, interestingly enough, the evangelical church, which has always, well, I shouldn't say always, but for a long, long time, done their theology on the basis of philosophy, it was good when there was absolute truth with Plato and with Aristotle. But when you get to the emerging church, when you get to the postmodern philosophy, it's pretty contradictory to say you believe in an absolute God, but yet embrace postmodern philosophy at the same time. So the evangelical church is finding it hard to adopt postmodern philosophy in its framework of how to understand God and all these things. And so they're reaching back to the early church, all right? The problem is the early church is also based on Plato and Aristotle as well. So let's see if we can describe the emerging church's worship. It's an alter- they call it an alternative rave worship borrowed directly from the culture of the dance music in the 1980s and 1990s. Combined with that, you have images of the cross, you have incense, you have paintings, you have slides, you have drawings, you have candles, you have the Eucharist and the Mass as well. It's an epic uh, it's an epic presentation that inundates you with a sensory, experience, sensory type of worship experience. So it takes what postmodernism has to offer, and then it blends it also with items in the early church. 
also, there's no longer any distinction between holy and unholy or between sacred and secular. Everything is good and holy and can be used for God. All right, we're going we're gonna to really unpack that as we, as we go along later on. The, they call it the ancient future church because the emerging church connects. The early church, again, that's not Peter, James, John, and the Apostle Paul. That's after their death. It connects the early church with the future church together. This is an interesting article in um, Christianity Today in 2008. The future lies in the past. Notice. Last spring, 2007, something was stirring under the white steeple of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. A motley group of young and clean-cut, goateed and pierced, white-haired and bespectacled filled the center's Barrows Auditorium. They joined their voices to sing of the saints who nobly fought of old and mystic communion with those whose rest is one. One speaker gleefully passed on the news that Liberty University, founded by the late Jerry Falwell, had observed the liturgical season of Lent, a Roman Catholic festival. Just what was going on in this veritable shrine to pragmatic evangelistic methods and no-nonsense back-to-the-Bible Protestant conservatism? Had the Catholics taken over? Who would have thought a decade ago that one of the most vibrant and serious fields of Christian study at the beginning of the 21st century would be the ancient church fathers? The Christianity Today article further mentions that this worship renewal began about 30 years ago, a veiled reference back to Vatican II, and has caused Protestant evangelicals to enter the new millennium by surging into the past. All signs point to the maturing of the ancient future church. So, what do you do? Easy, says this young movement. Stop endlessly debating and advertising Christianity and just embody it. Embrace symbols and sacraments. Dialogue with the other two historic confessions, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Recognize that the road to the church's future is through its past and break out the candles and incense. Pray using Lectio Divina. That's a form of contemplative prayer where you repeat meaningless things, even scripture, in such a way that your mind is turned off. Uh, Practices similar to the Desert Fathers and Ignatius uh, spiritual exercises and Buddhist monks and, and, uh, and so forth and so on. The phenomenon is exactly the same. And uh, tap into all the, uh, the riches of tri- Christian tradition you can find. So the craziness of modern worship is being blended with the incense, the candles, the, the, the mass together. And friends, these are not just artistic expressions, they're philosophical expressions as well. Interesting, are all roads now leading to Rome? Protestants and Catholics, do they now agree? This uh, man on the, on the right here, uh, part of the screen, Francis J. Beckwith, used to be the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He resigned and became a Roman Catholic. Now, emerging church speakers have been shaping Adventist leadership in conferences, school, uh, uh, worship, and missionary efforts, believe it or not. These kinds of philosophies are coming into our church, and there are certain conferences that are just head over heels for this kind of methodology. Now, again, don't, don't forget dualism, okay? The basis of ecumenism is substantial unity. The Eucharist via Plato and Aristotle, all these other things are up for grabs because there's no causal connection between the two. Now, here's what I want you to consider. What do all these forms of worship have in common? Everything that I've just mentioned so far. Roman Catholic, charismatic, megachurch, and emerging church. They have one thing 
in common, okay? Dualism. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. Plato has given us these two, du- these two worlds in which there is no causal connect between the one and the other. It, it has been virtually hijacked and used by the early church in how they understood Christian doctrines. This has caused the complete eclipsing of the sanctuary doctrine. You see, because we believe that there's a real sanctuary up there in heaven. It is an actual physical structure. Yes, far surpassing anything that we could ever imagine, but nonetheless real. According to these philosophies, that can't exist. Anything in space and time or anything that is material is automatically a shadow and can't be used as the building blocks to understand Christian doctrine. Same with the Sabbath as well. The Sabbath, because it's associated with time, cannot be used as a building block to understand God, to understand worship, or anything else. It's simply a shadow. Now, I talked about the immortality of the soul. So if you believe in the immortality of the soul, how do you experience worship? Well, it it really helps me because I grew up as Greek Orthodox, similar to Catholic. When you partake of the sacraments then um, you have the assurance of salvation. That's it. Done deal. It does not require faith. It does not require a change of mind. It doesn't require a change of heart. Nothing. As long as you take those sacraments, that's it. You're done. You have automatic connection with God. Ex opere operato. By virtue of taking it, that's it. You're done. You have this relationship with God. That's it. You can live like the devil. As long as you accept that sacrament, you have that assurance. Now, we can live like that as Adventists, too. We can just come to church, go through the motions, listen to the sermon. When charismatic music plays, it's a very forceful, powerful experience. It's not a a mind-transforming experience at all. Romans chapter 12 says says we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That means that whatever we do to our body affects our minds. Jesus said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, but not according to Greek philosophy and this dualistic nature. All right? So you can go to church, you don't have to have a... But you interpret the music as being filled with the Holy Spirit because you've been emotionally charged up, that's all. But there's been no change of purpose, no direction. You keep doing the same things over and over and over and over again. That assumes this doctrine of the immortality of the soul based on platonic dualism. So Jesus said that the hour cometh and now is. When the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In short, if we have the kind of worship philosophy that says we can use anything and everything we want, it cannot be a spiritual worship. It's based on the dualistic cosmology of Plato and Aristotle. And so, and we ought not to use our experience to say, you know what, this was spiritual. We ought to use the principles in the Word of God. So now that I've talked about the false foundation, we're going to give you a five-minute break.
and we're going to switch to the true foundation. And in the true foundation, you'll find that everything is completely integrated because that's how God works. Everything is interrelated. Dualism doesn't appear in the doctrine of God's worship. So go ahead and take a five-minute break. We'll come right back and get right to it. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.